the main picture is of a, a family. Mm. The dad is black and he has a shirt on that says white lives matter. Mm. The mom is white and she has on a shirt that says black lives matter. Yes. And then their son, I imagine is mixed race and the, pro- the product of the two of them. And his shirt says all lives matter. Yes, there it is. That is that is the liberal fantasy of miscegenation. It's Alyssa, your resident word nerd. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am happy to be back on the mic. And hey, y'all, it's it's been a minute. Uh, I'm Brendan. I'm the resident hot girl. I got to rep my girl, Meg, you know, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm happy to be back here with you on the mic, Alyssa. Yay. Today, we will be talking about Black political movements, neoliberalism, and honestly, truly, how some of y'all really got the daughters confused for somebody else. Somebody else. But before we get started, we want to thank our wonderful supporters, Davian, Mayada, Jason, Kyle, Miranda, Sophie, and Esther for donating to the podcast. And one thing that I've started noticing that's super dope is that we've been getting donations from all over like Canada, Germany, the Netherlands. Like it's just incredible to know that we are reaching people in all of these different places and that black folks are multiple and out there. Yes. And honestly, open your wallet and open the <laughs> borders. Cause I got, to, um, yes. but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Anyway, if you can spare some coin uh, in these troubling times, head to our website, Zora'sDaughters.com or click on the link in the description of this episode. But don't think for one second, that dollars and cents are really the only way to support us. Every new follower comment and share means so much to us. Thank you to Tiff, Sarah and the two others who left reviews on Apple's podcast. And special shout out to our listener Sophie for writing into us to share how the podcast has transformed conversations at your university. We really appreciate hearing from y'all. So please don't be shy about writing in. Yeah, love it. We love it. So keep leaving those reviews on Apple and Stitcher. Hit us up on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. Or, you know, even shoot us an email, zorasdaughterspod at gmail.com. So let's get into this life update. Yes. Why we couldn't, couldn't, didn't feel like recording <laughs> last month to <laughs> get another episode out for y'all. For me, I think for both of us, it was, it was grant writing season. I mean, that's an ongoing process. We were both trying to get money for our field work. Mm-hmm. And... I'm like, I'm working hard on this one grant. I've got it. You know, people, we've, we, ha- you and I with, a, with two other black women, you know, we had our little writing group together. Yes. It was so fun. It was great. I loved it. Um, we, so, you know, we're working hard, working away and let me find out <laughs> last Friday after I submitted that grant we'd been working on for, for six weeks that there's a whole ass other grant due in four days (laughs) 
Yo, when you sent that, when you sent that text message, I was like, woo, bitch, you're gonna have to put in some work. I was like, oh, this is done. I've submitted. Let me take a couple of days to catch my breath. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, let me get to the keys on the keyboard, click clacking it up. Um, but you did it though. I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> I did it. I sent, I sent my supervisor a text and I was just like, I'm in a bit of a panic. <laughs> I read that like a, a bit, a bit of a panic. <laughs> but, but, but it all got done. You got yours in and it was, it was fantastic. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed for you. Fingers crossed for I know. I had to research. Wow. Um, it was, it was a process. I will say that along the way, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, you know, really, honestly, this whole process and just how I don't ever really want to go through this again. But this is actually really, if I choose to be an academic, this is <laughs> this is the rest of my life. Yeah, this kind of is. stressful grant writing season mm-hmm. moment. It um, is part and parcel of of being an academic. It's not I don't know. You've got to ask a lot of people for money <laughs> and hope that they think that whatever it is that you're doing is, is worthy. Right. And so there's a lot of gatekeeping involved in that mm-hmm. or there can be. And so, you know, you kind of just have to work hard and hope for the best. I think a lot of it, a lot of it is luck, but also a lot of it is setting yourself up for success. And so, you know. Yeah, that's real. I think I'm going to just try to win the lottery and then <laughs> I do. I played the lottery one time and I got three out of the six numbers. So I was like, okay, Okay. maybe the next time I could get closer, I could Mm -hmm. win some money. And then I'm just going to give money to like all my friends. Alyssa, you'll you'll get the message. Yeah. There'll be a cold message. (laughs) And it's time to quit your job. And I have another group of friends. I'll be like, well, that won't be the cold message. It'll be something else. But, you know. It'll be the alert will be sent out. And whether you choose to join me or not, <laughs> that's all yeah, you got. You can do the independent scholar thing, you know, independent scholar, independent woman, independent living. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just do it all. Do it all. I'm tired. Who? But as far as what I've been up to, honestly, I just took this time to rest and rejuvenate and like just get more into myself and my own life and spirit after my ancestors and spirit guides and angels etc dragged me on how hard I am (laughs) on myself I I tried to Mm. practice more self-love um and trying to drag myself for not doing that before so it's been a journey I'll say that Mm -hmm. but I'm excited to be back yeah we just really needed that break for our own mental health and yeah it's like the podcast started to feel like a job and we're like, we never want this to feel like a job. Mm -hmm. We enjoy sitting down and talking to each other and talking to y'all. So the break was appropriate. Yes, absolutely. But don't worry. We're not going to shortchange you on episodes. We're going to get all of the episodes out. You're going to hear everything for this season. So worry not. We got Mm y'all. Insecure reference. (laughs) (laughs) And but, uh, we got y'all <laughs> awful. All right, so let's let's do our quick let's let's quickly run through our little our little game um, that is very appropriate for uh, for the season that we're in right now, which is we're still waiting to hear on 
who is going to be the next president of these here United States. And so we're going to do our defund, reform, abolish. And I have come up, well, not come up, but I have listed some phrases that you will hear on the right-leaning Fox News kind of news websites. And so, Brendan. Ooh, I'm not. Ooh, okay. <laughs> which do you want to defund? Which do you want to reform? Which do you want to abolish of the phrases? Middle America. Mm. The radical left. Mm. Or take back America. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. I know we gotta, we gotta get through this episode. So let me figure out how to do this. I think I would definitely reform the radical left. I would say out of those three, that phrase is the one that I think is the most salvageable just because, you know, well, hmm. If you're radical, are you on this spectrum? There are some people that say no, right? You're not going to be on the spectrum of the right or left if you are a radical. But then there are mm. people who are leftists who have radical leanings. So this is for y'all. Y'all have been reformed. You should leave the left and just join the radicals. Middle America, I think... I'm going to defund y'all because technically capitalism has already defunded you. So I think I'm just going <laughs> to go ahead and <laughs> go ahead and just say defunding that because it's already the truth. The middle class, as you all may have you know, seen in reports, is gone. There's no such thing really as a middle class. Either you are working class or poor or you're not. And this is the state of the world. If you believe that America has gone somewhere in which it can, needs to be <laughs> taken back, I am going to go ahead and ask you to abolish that thought and that school of thought, because that is not, what are we taking America back to? What, at what point? We're not taking it back to the indigenous people who lived here before you know, all of us arrived. So what's, where are we taking it back to? Because I know, I know y'all not talking about slavery. I know. <laughs> I know you're not trying to take... I don't think it's a take back to, though. It's usually a take back from, right? So this, this, is usually, yes. this usually comes along with the, you know, with like the majority minority rhetoric, which is like, actually all of these like blacks and browns, they're all taken over America and we need to take it back from them. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's basically mm, make America white again. Yeah. Um, but, and that, I was yeah. trying to stay away from that interpretation. <laughs> I was going to take, you know, I was trying to take another interpretation. But yeah, obviously, like, take it back from us. I mean, what do y'all, what do y'all want? The decreased life chances? Mm. What do you, do you want? Like, the fracking? Do you want the environmental dangers, you could take it back. Take it back. Have it. Keep it. Have it. Keep it. <laughs> it, it actually um, belongs to you. Um, and, you know, that, take that back. Um, but as far as, like, positions of power, it's already yours. It's a myth. It's a, it's a myth that it's not already, you know, anyway. Um, 
yeah, that's why I'm gonna stand on that for now. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I follow that. I, did, I I I definitely agree with you. I actually thought that Middle America was more uh, geographical. That's how I always understood it. Oh. Like, but but maybe I mean it is maybe it is the middle class. But I always thought of Middle America being those like flyover states that nobody really pays attention to. Oh. Um, but I mean, all of these basically what you know what these phrases really are, of course, are dog whistles and can we even mm-hmm. call them dog whistles because it's very clear what they mean and we hear what you mean mm-hmm. but they're you know basically saying you know middle america is saying white americans take back america is saying give white americans back america like you know put us put us back at the forefront or not even put us back at the forefront like they very clearly are but it's like stop making space for people who aren't white I think is what that what that mm. phrase is, and of course the radical left is they're trying to take away our guns and <laughs> and, and 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 religious books. <laughs> Yo, you know something's wrong when when they start labeling people who very clearly have centrist politics or even right leaning centrist politics as radical. It's like, oh my goodness, yeah. the threat. Like this person uh-huh. is a threat to to your way of life in absolutely no way, but you need to label them as such because this is how politics work in a two-party system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I never thought of it as like a geographical Midwest thing, but it's still like, it makes sense. It makes sense too in yeah. both ways. Like I always thought of it as a middle class. Claire was talking about white people voting against their interests or like middle middle class or working class white people voting against their interests. So that's like where my mind went. Yeah, I think that, that concept, voting against your own interest, you know, and, and having your own interests actually moves us nicely into our next segment. True. Which is our what's the word segment. So what's our word for today? Our word for today is neoliberalism. <sighs> now, <laughs> neoliberalism is one of these new isms. I mean, it's not actually that new as you will discover today, but people love to use it. And if you're in higher education, if you're in the university, you yeah, have absolutely- Everything is neoliberal. <laughs> everything is. You've absolutely heard someone la- lament the neoliberal university. Mm-hmm. This is just the neoliberalization of the university at least once, if not more. And so in some ways, it's this term that has come to mean so much that I don't even think it really means- anything anymore but we're gonna unpack it today so yeah we are i gotta start it with that i am and yeah so we're gonna start with as we always do with like origins and things like that so the term was coined post world war one by the freiburg school which is a group of economists and legal scholars in germany to mean their revival of classical liberalism In the 1990s, it was taken up by critics of market reform in the global South, giving it a negative connotation and association with U.S. policies to globalize capitalism after many believed the fall of Soviet communism would mean the unchallenged spread of American free market capitalism. And so like any new idea or any new policy, there were, of course, critics. People said, that term is opaque, it's just some silly catchphrase that was invented by radical academics. There we go again with the radical and so on. But 
essentially it came to mean the glorification of self-interest and self-reliance, economic efficiency, and of course, unchecked market competition. And so in that, in that phrase that we hear so much, the neoliberal university, it's usually used to mean that responsibility is downloaded onto the individual rather than the institution kind of taking care of these things that they mm-hmm. actually once used to, but mm-hmm. decided to make more of an individual problem. So to understand what is neo about neoliberalism, we have to understand liberalism. So we have to go back to the classical liberals like Adam Smith, Ooh, child, Adam Smith, the 18th century (laughs) British economist. Um, The classical liberals were critical of monarchs who had complete control over the economy, who amassed these large amounts of wealth, a.k.a. gold that came from anyway, dot, dot, dot. Uh, So they said, actually, why don't y'all redistribute some of that? And we need a free market in which prices for goods and services are self-regulated by the open market and the consumers. Supply and demand were for free influence from the government, from any authority, monopolies, or artificial forms of scarcity. Right. You know, now, now that you're saying this, this actually sounds a lot like the logic that kind of undergirds why America doesn't have universal health care. I feel like mm-hmm. I always hear people say, well, you know, it's just, it's a consumer market. And if there's uh, enough competition, then, you know, these will reduce prices for consumers. So America understands sick people as consumers, or I mm-hmm. guess they also, you know, they also kind of say that it will encourage hospitals to offer better services because some because people have the option of going, you know, of choosing which hospital they go to and all of these kinds of things. And it's just like, A, this is wild because in Canada, there are still great services and you can choose your hospital. But it also clearly doesn't work like this concept of, of the market regulating itself. And I think we see that a lot with digital technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that the majority, not even most, the majority of the apps on my phone are either Google or Facebook products is clearly a testament to that. So we basically have just ended up with these like new mercantilists and instead of, instead of digging for gold, they're digging for data. Right. And so they, they really, they know how to play the system to like amass these ridiculous amounts of wealth. So if we want to, you know, be, gracious towards adam smith i feel like when i that's why i said like why don't you redistribute i think that was definitely a gracious reading of it right like mm-hmm. oh instead of the king having all this gold that you stole from or you robbed continents of and people of why don't you just redistribute it among us the deserving people right who who sh- who should make good choices so it's about rationality it's about mm. these enlightenment thinkers that we've talked about in previous episodes and these kind of ideologies about who knows what's best is also deeply tied into neoliberalism. So when you're talking about the consumer knows best and it's like things are framed as a choice, like, oh, no one chooses to really be sick. So like, why would you choose to go to this bad hospital? Or why would you choose to go to, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of things that also is about what you said earlier about downloading responsibility to the individual taking Mm -hmm. this like government responsibility and reframing it as a choice framed under this kind of laissez-faire economic system. 
And so these ideas about this free market and laissez-faire economics actually helped stir a lot of the 18th century revolutions that ended these royal dynasties and separated the church and the state. And, you know, that was all good until the Great Depression. (laughs) So so you didn't want to say hunky-dory. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hunky-dory. I'm like, do I use that word? Um, I do. No, I don't really. But I was just, you know, it was meant to be used ironically. You know, like everything was (laughs) hunky-dory until the Great Depression. Because I'm sure that around that time, people were saying hunky-dory. <laughs> yes, everything was uh, hunky-dory until the Great Depression. <laughs> and people became very skeptical of these liberal ideas like freedom, opportunity, and hard work. And so to avoid revolution here in the U.S., we got these Italian liberals like Franklin Roosevelt, who was influenced by the British economist John Maynard Keynes. Keynes. Who Keynes? Is it Keynes? Keynes. My whole life I heard it was Keynes. Oh my Uh, God. Well, you know what? Name is a name is a name and I am not here to police your pronunciation. So my whole life (laughs) has been, you know, I'm moving back. Anyway, Keynes (laughs) who wanted to defend individual autonomy and property rights, but also allow a secular state to regulate capitalism. Yeah, so if you've ever heard the term Keynesian or Keynesian, uh, Keynesian economics, it's basically because of this guy. And so for me, the first time I heard it, it was because of this like annoying, pedantic white dude in a bar when I lived in London. And he was trying to explain something to me. I can't remember the context of the conversation, what it was that we were talking about. But he was like, you know, it's all because of Keynesian economics. And I was just like, what's that? And he just looked at me like, are you okay? (laughs) Are you all right? Like, you're right, mate. (laughs) You're right, mate. Uh, How do you not know what that is? But anyways, I was, I wasn't an economics major. I was Keynesian economics. Okay. But essentially What it is, is that he challenged the idea that the market would regulate itself. And so he advocated for spending in times of economic crisis mm-hmm. in order to create jobs, increase, you know, and increase spending by consumers. So we definitely saw this concept in action with the stimulus check, a.k.a. the stimmy. When's <laughs> the next stimmy coming? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> People, out, people are out there on the internets talking about their next stimmy. So they're just waiting for... Why did I have no clue what people were talking about? And now it's coming to... I was like, stimmy, is this... Stimmy, yeah. People are like, people are just waiting for, for Biden to make it rain with stimmy checks. <laughs> Keynesian economics is basically what kind of undergirds that, that stimulus check idea. So mm. lawmakers actually justified it by saying this is going to help help the economy, right? This is going to help keep the economy afloat. It wasn't like, we're going to help people survive one of the most significant crises in the United States in a century. Instead, mm. it was more about, about helping the economy. So in that sense, egalitarian li- liberalism is a kind of controlled capitalism. And the, the like golden period of, of this uh, egalitarian liberalism or controlled capitalism was from about 1945 to 1975. So... 
Egalitarian liberalism was popping, as the kids say, but, you know, the economy was great, wages were high, inflation was low, until the 1970s when the world faced severe economic crises. So some liberals were like, okay, let's bring back, bring, ooh, bring black, no, bring it back, <laughs> bring back <laughs> classical liberalism. But now it's the 70s and globalization is actually really ramping up. So that brings new challenges and new opportunities. So you could gloss neoliberalism as a free market economics and personal autonomy under globalization. These neoliberals were committed to spreading a free market and free trade model around the world. And while Keynes or Keynes dominated macroeconomic theory and practice up to this point, the neoliberals set the world economic and political agenda from the 1980s until the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So neoliberalism, we can actually thank for structural adjustment programs. And so if you're not familiar with these structural adjustment programs or SAPs, they really constrained the autonomy of a lot of countries in the global south because they were touted as the way to successful economic development for quote unquote third world countries. And so What these were, were essentially loans from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and they would loan this money to developing countries, but the terms of the loans were that they had to make social and economic adjustments to the country, Mm -hmm. and so that could be meeting human rights standards, but it also meant integrating them into global structures of trade, finance, production. And so all of these adjustments that they needed to make were decided by these organizations rather than the countries themselves. So it kind of like enforced this, this, these like Western ideas of what development means on to, onto countries who had their own ideas of what it meant. So in that sense, it hindered these self-directed models of development that kind of focused on the domestic market mm-hmm. um, and then basically gave license for all of these like powerful nations to pillage like material wealth from countries in Africa, the Caribbean and so on. So, you know, and then it left them very heavily indebted to uh, the World Bank and the IMF. And of course, these are funded by, you know, basically like the US, UK, France, China. And so that's why you'll kind of find that there that there are so many like uh, mining companies in in different countries in Africa, and that these mining countries are are these mining companies are um, owned by you know some kind of American or British you know subsidiary or something along those lines. What you're saying really reminds me of this documentary I watched in one of my courses first year about the structural adjustment program in Jamaica, and the name has escaped me. So when I figure it out, I'll link it in the transcript, but. Um, it really linked this kind of this neoliberalism to what they called neocolonialism. And it really shows how, like you were saying, like how these two things work together to kind of redo or, you know, make what happened in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries happen again and continue to happen in these countries. But essentially, neoliberalism can be broken down into three policies. One, deregulation of the economy two, liberalization of trade and industry, and three, privatization of state-owned enterprises. So you'll see things like replacing welfare with workfare, aka get a job, 
if you really want to you know eat get a job um downsizing the government and these kind of tax havens for corporations that invest certain amounts into you know the stock market into the government anti-unionization efforts removal of financial and trade regulations and so on and so forth yeah and so there's that it's 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 a policy it is a mode of governance but it is also an ideology so what is an ideology? So it's an idea or a belief that's widely shared and it's accepted as true. And what it does is it encourages people to act in a certain way. So who kind of like codifies or, or kind of uh, like makes us, helps us to understand and believe in a certain ideology? It's going to be the society's elites, right? It's going to be corporations, journalists, celebrities, politicians, think tanks, all of these groups, they sell neoliberalism to make it seem dope. So that's why you'll hear from the richest person to the poorest person being like, I just have to work hard and I can have what, what Kanye West has. Mm. I don't want what Kanye West has. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that the American dream and the, um, the kind of practices that are that are meant to be behind achieving the American dream are fundamentally neoliberal. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that I saw this uh, headline for someone running for, I can't remember if he was running for representative or senator. Um, he's a black man. His name is Johnny James and he was running as a Republican. Mm. And there is a news article about him and the headline that they took from one of his quotations, one of the things that he said during his interview was, America, the only country where you can go from slave to senator in four generations. <laughs> I was like, bruh, do you know how long four generations is? Longer, longer than that pause. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yes, so this is, this is like another (laughs) thing. It's just like they sell or they disseminate these images of the consumerist free market world. It's the ideal. (laughs) It's like, look at this amazing life you can have with all of these dope cars and clothes and things that you don't really need, but should have. And if you work hard and there's that liberal word, the hard work, you can have it too, Right. But then what that it does is it basically obscures the market forces and fundamental inequality mm-hmm. and impossibility of that free market capitalism because it really only works when some people are poor and sell their labor for less than the thing that they produce. So when you put it that way, I was like, I was like, hang on, as I was typing this, I was like, you know what? Capitalism sounds like a pyramid scheme. It is, though. That's the gag. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Capitalism is a pyramid scheme. Like, too many people see it as their salvation, but it's, it's not. So it's like all of the people that you're looking up to are exploiting or have exploited someone to possess that net worth. Like, yes, Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yes, Kanye West. Yes, Tyler Perry. Yes, Warren Buffett, who you idolize for his business acumen. Like, Business acumen is basically how can I generate the most profit for the least expenditure? And so that's why I always think about the time 
AOC said, you don't make a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars because profits are taken from underpaying and under-resourcing people. So let's all just disabuse ourselves of the notion that capitalism is noble and that neoliberalism is the way to our freedom. It's not. It's not. It's not. (laughs) But, you know, we can come back to the celebrities, et cetera. Mm -hmm later um we should move on to what we're reading today because i think that'll really help us kind of pull in these threads of like when we get to black politics it'll really help us pull it all together so Alyssa, what what we reading today all right today we are reading mapping gender in african-american political strategies by leith mullings Yes, Leith Mullings is a distinguished professor of anthropology at CUNY Graduate Center. So that's in New York City. She is an anthropologist, author, lecturer, and educator who conducts research on timely social issues with community members directly impacted by these issues. She has conducted research in Africa, Latin America, and the United States. And through the lens of feminist and critical race theory, she has analyzed a variety of topics, including kinship, representation, gentrification, health disparities, and social movements. And she was also the president of the American Anthropological Association from 2011 to 2013. Big things are gone. Big things. Yes. I don't know why I just tried to say that. Uh, Mullings has written a groundbreaking <laughs> corpus of work, and she serves as a model of politically engaged anthropological scholarship. Currently, she's working on an ethno history of the African burial ground in New York City. But today, we are reading a chapter from her book entitled On Our Own Terms, Race, Class, Gender, and the Lives of African-American Women, which was published in 1997. And this book takes a comprehensive look at Black women's lives in the U.S., but we're only going to focus on this chapter. Yeah, I think that Leith Mullings is definitely someone whose work, you know, we think of ourselves as as being in the footsteps in. You know, she's really really doing this, like, feminist and critical race work, um, but, you know, through... through like a kind of global lens of doing, you know, field work in all of these different, all of these different regions of the world and then bringing that together to help us really understand blackness. And I think that is dope. Hello. Hi. I hope you listen. I know. I hope you you hear this or someone tells you that you're featured. So you'll listen. Um. (laughs) So where should we start? I feel like this chapter is stacked with so, so many important contributions. I think that one, she you know, Leith Mellings, she really sets the record straight by saying women have always been instrumental in political movements. And so Black women in particular have always had to deal with gender inequality in these movements because of our racial and gender identities, aka the intersection of these identities, aka mm-hmm. massage noir. If you're mm-hmm. like, what in the massage noir? You can check out our first episode. Yes, where <laughs> we break it plug. down. But, you know, what she points out is that some movements ask us to put our racial identities before our gender, but of course, we know that's impossible. And so to kind of give you an overview, she writes about how many studies of Black movements place them in two camps. 
integrationist versus nationalist. But Mullings notes that there are actually three distinct categories that fully capture the Black political experience. So she takes us through a mapping of gender politics in Black American political movements by drawing attention to three camps, which are essentially inclusionist, autonomist, and transformationist. Yes. So inclusionist movements assume, and I quote, African-Americans are Americans who just happen to be Black. And so they aim to integrate Black people into white American society and to adopt white American values and lifestyles. Mm. So they aim for this kind of equal access to opportunity, which is typically achieved through existing structures in the social and legal system. And these movements rarely question the current economic system, so the neoliberalist capitalist system, except when it fails to live up to its quote-unquote democratic principles under which this country was founded. And I think maybe in a later in a section or a future episode, I'll have to really think about what does democracy mean mm. to us as black people. But for now, I'm just going to keep it pushing and say, you know, <laughs> these inclusionists are actually, I think some of us would call them reformists who believe that systems are broken, right? And can be fixed through certain forms of representation, so Mullings traces this mindset and she and she says that it probably began with the freed black communities in the north. I want to mm. highlight the north. Mm-hmm. Um, early, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois in his early days was a, definitely an inclusionist and the older A. Philip Randolph. And if you don't know who A. Philip Randolph is, look him up. He is or he was, excuse me, he's passed away. Um, an American labor unionist who founded the first predominantly black labor union, which was called Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters. I don't know why the carporters are asleep, but, <laughs> or oh, maybe it's a porters of a sleeping car. Got it. <laughs> the early civil rights movement is also an example of an inclusionist movement. Right. So, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the way inclusionists often appeal to respectability politics. So they're, you know, they're the ones who will say like, black men pull up your pants or, mm. you know, things like that. And we're going to come back to that. And if you want to learn more, see, I'm just, I'm dropping the episodes. I'm just like shouting us, shouting our own selves out. Um, yes. Side black you. women. <laughs> <laughs> but we talk about respectability politics in episode three. There's some anthros in this house. If you're kind of like, what exactly do we mean by that? But I was, I was really thinking like, what role does respectability play in inclusionist politics? Which is the chicken? Which is the egg? Like, mm-hmm. does respectability lead to inclusionist politics or does inclusionist politics engender, like engender people playing into respectability? Yeah, I was thinking, I think what you're saying is, yeah, it is definitely a chicken and egg. So possibly... I don't know. Or maybe respectability came first in the sense of like, if I'm thinking about enslaved folks who might, who might not have seen themselves as empowered enough at the time to even create a movement that would allow them to be included into this particular system, but could abide by a certain type of respectability politics in the hopes of escaping certain types of violence. So I can see, I can see like that, but I do think what you're saying is right. Like I do think they work hand in hand with each other. 
but I think there's a sense of respectability really in like in most inclusionists and also in certain autonomous movements as well. We, mm-hmm. we see mm-hmm. respectability and I know I just introduced the word without it being explained. So we'll get there. We'll get there. It's almost there. But yeah. Okay. I think it's I think it's interesting. It's something it's something to think about. But mm-hmm. you know, those chicken egg problems, are they ever really solvable? <laughs> That's the true. Question. But yeah, I mean when we were prepping for this episode, you asked me if there were any kinds of examples of, of inclusionist movements in Canada. And ah, this this is this is my time to shine. so contrary to the popular belief about canada there was never a time before 1834 when black people were not held as slaves and canadians are not always nice and canada is not free of racism and or anti-blackness so I think people, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, this is, it was the end of the Underground Railroad. Uh, you know, Canada was helping to free slaves, et cetera, et cetera. I, I personally think that they were mostly just trying to piss off the Americans after losing the war, but like, okay. <laughs> um, but so after the U.S. Civil War um, and the Emancipation Proclamation, a lot of Canadian Blacks actually moved back to the U.S. I'm dead! <laughs> I'm dead. Because they were like, nah, just ain't it. They were like, Canada is never going to be a place that's hospitable for black people. So there was actually more hope, I guess, because of the war and people actually had fought on the side of freeing slaves, you know, quote unquote. Again, there's an asterisk there. Uh, I guess that, you know, people tended to feel that going back to the U.S. would, would be you know, better than staying in Canada where they had no hope of ever being included or um, being a part of society. So there was that. Then in the 20th century, in the early 1900s, the Canadian government was literally always trying to find ways to deny uh, Black Americans from coming into Canada. And so at that time, they were looking for farmers to start kind of like farming the prairies um, which is like the kind of middle of Canada, f- lots of flat land, grow, lo- grow lots of things, lots of wheat, mm. things like that. Um, and so instead of, instead of just being like, okay, here are all of these people who are sharecroppers and they want to come to Canada and like make a, make a living, make a life, they're like, nah, we're just going to deny all of you, but we're not going to say it's because you're Black, we're going to say it's for medical reasons and stuff like that because... They still did. Now they weren't trying to piss off the Americans. <laughs> yeah, Canada, pick a side. So, pick a side. So there was that <laughs> in Nova Scotia, which is where a lot of the Black loyalists uh, settled. Um, those who were loyal to Britain during the War of Independence, um, and so the the kind of uh, you know what was the what was the policy at the time? So if you fought on the side of of the Brits, if you won and you didn't die then you would be freed. So a lot of slaves joined, joined the war as a result. Um, of course, the British lost, um, but what they did offer is that you could come to Canada where you'd be free, you'd be given land. Of course, they were given the most garbage land um, mm-hmm. possible. And then the places where they were told that they could settle were awful. Um, if y'all want a little more of a 
of like a, a fictional kind of rendering of that. You can check out the book of Negroes. Mm. Um, so yeah, so a lot of them were settled in Nova Scotia. Uh, Nova Scotia had segregation, segregated schools, public spaces. Um, if you know about Viola Desmond, people kind of render her as the, the Canadian Rosa Parks. She sat in a seat um, that was designated for white people at the movie theater and she was dragged out of the movie theater and charged. And it wasn't until 2010 that she was pardoned for that posthumously. Um, That's when it matters. mm -hmm. And so there was KKK activity in Ontario in the 60s. There was even in 1991, a race riot in a Nova Scotia high school. Race riot is their language, not mine. Mm. But in any case, one thing I think is that, so actually there was a lot of rioting in Canada. That was kind of like the black political language, let's, let's say. Even though there was quite a bit of integration into politics, like I think we've had our first black elected official like a lot earlier <laughs> than the U.S. had. Probably. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I did want to think or what I, what, I, what I wanted to say was that I think... Um, Black people in Canada have never really been naive about the possibility of true inclusion because they've always been from elsewhere. You know, they were mm-hmm. always like former American slaves, um, you know, Caribbean immigrants and things like that. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there is the prevailing Canadian ideology, which is anti-assimilationist, right? It's, it was codified by Pierre Trudeau. And yes, that is Justin Trudeau's father. And he created this multicultural policy and he asserted in 1971 that Canada is a multicultural country with two official languages. And that was actually a correction after a lot of people uh, kind of critiqued him for saying that it's a bicultural country. So he kind mm-hmm. of changed it and was like, we're a multicultural country. So the way that I always learned about Canada was in opposition to the U.S., right? The U.S. is a melting pot and Canada is a cultural mosaic. And those are the exact words that you will probably find in a civics textbook, at least from the 90s and 2000s. So Canada has always imagined itself as, as a kind of cultural mosaic. And um, the point was that ideally anyone could enjoy the rights of Canadian society while maintaining their own cultural specificity. So of course that doesn't always work in practice, but mm-hmm. this very, very long explanation was to say that I don't really think that there's been inclusionist. <laughs> yeah, I guess, no, yeah, that's so Please correct me if I'm wrong, but listeners, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that there's more transformationist politics, um, political actions going on. That's and so... another word that we've introduced without explaining. <laughs> right, but I'm like, yo, Canada, I, as a young girl educated in South Carolina, I really... Don't remember much about my history lessons besides the fact that we spent an entire year learning South Carolina history um, and celebrating the Confederacy in different ways. And so it's always interesting to me to hear how other people describe their experiences because I <laughs> promise you, I don't know shit. So, um, and, I'm, and I accept that, I don't know. But that like this melting pot versus cultural mosaic image for me is is really fascinating but and, and again i want to say it's an ideal um and it is not something that canada or canadians always live up to in practice yes. oh so, 
Um, <laughs> let, let me just let me just make sure that's clear for everybody. Yeah, that I'm not trying to uh, idealize Canadian values or anything like that, but there is some kind of like legal precedent out there for people to be able to say this is part of my culture and the government can't impose on it. And I'm still then deserving of, of the rights and freedoms guaranteed to me by the charter of rights and freedoms. <laughs> wow. Well, yes, I had to do some studying on Canada. because <laughs> I'm just, you know, my brain, you know, is working really over time about anyway, let me stop nerding out for a yeah, second. Yeah, there's some stuff out there. But, okay. We should, well, we should tell them what autonomous movements are. Yes. So I will, I will get into that. And I'm sorry you all have to listen to my voice again for so long. <laughs> <laughs> so autonomous movements, they assume that Black Americans are Africans who just happen to be in America. And so they, quote, seek free social space, autonomous, geographic, institutional, or cultural space, that allows them to participate as equals either within the parameters of the state or in an altered political relationship with Euro-American civil society, end quote. And so while they have these elements of nationalism in their strategies, all autonomous movements are not necessarily nationalist movements. So these movements, they, don't, they also don't aim to kind of like significantly change or engage with the social and economic conditions caused by white supremacy and capitalism. Instead, they aim to create a separate social space that serves as a buffer to different forms of racial impression. So race is the primary form of identity that people organize around, and then all other forms of identity and oppressions are secondary. Well, white racism is seen as a constant that will never change. So blackness becomes, quote, fund the fundamental variable in the distribution of power, and the primary basis for organizing politics, people, markets, and capital. And so an example of, of an autonomous movement would be Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Nation of Islam, and the Republic of New Africa, among others. And so Black capitalism, aka buying Black, is a kind of autonomous movement, right? So we're trying to redirect our monetary resources within our own communities, um, but what that does then is kind of validate the current economic order that subjug subjugates us, right? So I guess one way to explain what, what we mean when we say all autonomous movements are not necessarily nationalist movements is looking at Black capitalism. So Black capitalism argues for a separate economic space. Black people, we spend our money on each other and with each other and among each other. But that doesn't necessarily mean right, that we're trying to create a separate nation or a separate like geographic space in which we all necessarily live together and identify as people of this African-American nation. Mm -hmm. um, and so nationalist movements, the ones that you're probably most familiar with, would, which would be the white supremacist nationalist movement, is one that desires land. Right. And instead has things mm -hmm. in land and this land belongs to a particular nation um, that of homogenous people. So not all black autonomous movements have the same grounding in land. But, you know, moving forward. Right. Black, buying black, y'all, it's not going to free us. <laughs> but we we make a commitment to do that on this podcast because we believe in supporting black people, especially black women, black queer, trans and disabled folks. But we know that black capitalism is not going to liberate 
anybody. Like we, Mm -hmm. it's not going to free us. So all this Instagram posts about how all you need to do is invest $250 into a LLC. So you can be this, that, and the third It's it's not going to end anti-blackness. All it's going to do is have you subtracting $250 out of your bank account. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Ice cube today being like, I I just got the the president to confirm that he will invest half a trillion dollars into the black community um, and y'all are getting on me and I, and I don't even need an endorsement. I was just like, is there some kind of black community bank account that I don't know about or something? I don't know. Do I need to sign up? Like, I'm like, do I need to sign up for this? Like, that's what I'm saying. But anyways, you know, um, that's, we'll get to that when we talk about that. We'll get to that in our, what the, what in the world. But yeah, like, moving forward. So this next movement um, that Mullings describes is the transformationalist movement. And these movements share some of the ideological beliefs of autonomous movements, which mainly is the groundedness in this African identity and heritage. But the main difference is that transformationalist movements aim to completely change these oppressive structures as opposed to living apart from them. So she traces these historical roots um, for this strategy back to Nat Turner, back to my girl Harriet Tubman, you know, and um, she claims an older Du Bois also believed this, but I I don't know if I agree with that, Um, as well as like a younger A. Philip Randolph. And so transformationalists work to dismantle all forms of inequality and not just those based on race. And they also recognize that Black liberation is a transnational struggle. So they connect mm. with Black freedom struggles across the, the globe. Right. Interesting. Would you say that like abolition is a transformationist movement or would you not, would you not put those two things together? I think in order for a movement to be transformationist, it has to be abolitionist. Mm. But not all abolitionist movements our transformationist movements but in order for something to be transformationist i think it has to be abolitionist okay interesting we're gonna get into we're gonna we're gonna have a really good combo (laughs) about abolition shortly (laughs) y'all um but so for each of these movements freedom and liberation they mean different things to each group so those working within inclusionist, autonomous, and transformationist movements have different strategies for economics, family life, societal structure, culture, and of course, the role of women. So inclusionist and autonomous movements, they can be very conservative when it comes to gender roles, and they'll kind of perpetuate a type of patriarchy that's rooted in control of women's bodies. I'm going to drop another episode. You might want to check out episode seven, Deathcraft Countries, if you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to know a little bit more about that. They can also be extremely homophobic and transphobic because they have these visions of building black futures through a cis-hetero form of reproduction. So transformationist movements, on the other hand, they tended to treat women as leaders rather than as foot soldiers. And that was when I was reading that, I was just like, oh, hell no. <laughs> like, they had us literally put it. I've been watching a lot of girlfriends, y'all. 
But they have us like literally, literally putting our bodies on the line with no position of leadership. And then talk about we're supposed to raise children and inspire men. Like what? And then they were just like clearly kind of valuing reproductive Black women. So like womanhood is tied up in this ability to reproduce in which, you know, men are the seed and women are, quote, the field upon which we reproduce the nation. And I was just like, (sighs) how are we meant to find liberation in that as Black peoples, like, broadly? I mean, it it would be, quote unquote, liberating for Black men. Um, exactly. If your definition of liberation is based is like, oh, the ability to oppress other people, then yeah, that's liberating for black for black cis men. But yeah, these hotep movements that be calling women women. I don't know if you've seen that, but like uh. they <laughs> like womb the so like W O M B E N, and you know then they they make these claims that like our African ancestors had their wives in the kitchen, quote unquote, you know, cooking and then like giving birth every five minutes, like, you know, kind of parallel African family structures to these European Mm -hmm. ideals of family structures. And these same movements demonize queer and trans people and saying that it's European influence that makes us live these quote unquote unnatural lives um so all i gotta say is if liberation looks like me being married to some cis man and popping out his kids and obeying his orders then i don't want it like period <laughs> like i don't want it that's it's not for me i don't feel liberated through that at nah, all. Nah, not at all and, uh, and of course like let's be clear those categories are not static right and i mean no, whose politics really are static one would mm-hmm. hope that they're not So sometimes, you know, movements and movement leaders, they move between these categories. So Martin Luther King Jr., he started out as an inclusionist and then kind of moved more towards a transformationist movement closer to his death once he realized that integration was not enough. And Black liberation leaders who have been killed or assassinated, it was usually when they started talking about capitalism, Mm. and about like about moving ourselves away from capitalism and critiquing capitalism that was when they were killed Mm. and so i think i tweeted once that like there is a c word that uh environmental activists can't use and Mm, it's you know they can't they can't critique capitalism but actually what i've learned is that they just can't say the s word they can't start talking about socialism uh because that is when they will lose their platform they'll lose the people who are supporting them because all of these movements are essentially supported by capitalism right right and it's like (sighs) in Martin Luther King Jr.'s case he was like even though I have numerous children with white mothers and (laughs) white people in my life that's okay y'all if you didn't know it's not a secret watch the watch the movie movie Selma (laughs) read on Martin Luther King Jr. there are white people who are descendants of Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, once he realized that, like, oh, I can't actually live the life that I've dreamed where my where my black children and my white children can hold hands and, you know, see each other for the continents of their character or whatever you want, you know, it's like, oh, actually underpinning all of this is this structure that holds black people down because they devalue our labor and want us to continue to work essentially mm-hmm. for free. And, and it's just like, 
white people, black liberals, they always quote young slash early Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. They are not quoting his later, his later works and writings. They are not quoting Malcolm X. They're not quoting Asada Shakur because those are like the true radical down with the system kind of, kind of work. And too many people are invested in the system as it is black people and white people, but, and non non-black people of color, I guess. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> since we, since like we abolished people, BIPOC. <laughs> right, like too many people are invested in this system. Um, and if I were to think of like contemporary examples of transformationist movements, I think we have movements that are inclusionists that really approach transformationists. Like they're like, you know, if we could think about transformationists as some type of asymptote thing. I'm, I'm pulling out my pre calc <laughs> For this moment, I was like, asymptote. Asymptote is like um, <laughs> a line that you can never really approach. It's like a certain type ah, of yes, yeah, line the, that you can never parabola kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You get okay. close to it, but you can never actually touch the the axis. Ooh, yo, so, Brendan, you know someone is about to teeth that from you, and it's going to be in a journal article about how something out there related to blackness anti-blackness is gonna is gonna be the next in the wake it's gonna be it's gonna be approaching the asymptote that's (laughs) you know and if you do that's cool i you know i i do not feel wedded to that idea good luck um (laughs) but i do think that like most movements of today's movements are inclusionist and they approach um they approach transformationists i don't think I don't know. I can't think of any right off the top of my head of any like really autonomous movements outside of the black capitalist buying black. Mm-hmm. Um, like Black Lives Matter, I see as an inclusionist movement because people are continuing to to push for changes in a legal system. Right. Even this appeal to like black lives mattering um, in a system that exists through like the 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 death and exclusion and exploitation of black people Mm -hmm. to to make black people human, quote unquote, um, and matter, quote unquote, in the system is, I think, an inclusionist movement. And if, and if you have issues with me saying that, you know, that I'm cool. We can talk about it, but yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think in that sense, I mean, like this episode is about black liberalism. Right. And so I think liberals are definitely Mm. within the inclusionist realm and we're going to unpack that now in our final segment. What? What in the world? Wait, what? 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 <laughs> so, so this episode, it was actually planned because that's how we roll. Mm-hmm. It was planned to kind of coincide with two things, right? So first, the 2020 election for which we still do not have a result um, as of this recording. And also the release of volume one of two of Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. And so for me, Barack Obama is the quintessential black liberal. And that is what I really wanted to talk about today is like Mm -hmm. specifically this kind of black liberal uh, project and agenda. And so I think that there were a lot of Black people who were like disappointed by his political decisions and even today, like the things that he says. 
because they were like, this is going to be great. You know, this is something different, but really he's not. He is fundamentally a believer in the system. And if you didn't believe in the system, you wouldn't run for president. So, you know, he, he's kind of down with the cause as long as it's respectable, of course, but he also spouts this like neoliberal rhetoric, right? This is a nation of freedom, mm. a promised land. Mm-mm. If y'all, y'all can't see, but I'm side-eyeing that one. <laughs> you know, when he said, black men, pull up your pants. When he said, black moms, keep your kids off the street. Mm. He's basically saying, it's your responsibility to keep yourselves from being killed by state-sanctioned violence and not the responsibility of the state for sanctioning violence against black people. Although we know that it Ooh. is built on, on like the inherent exclusion and death of black people, as Brendan said earlier, and we've talked about in previous episodes. And then, you know, Michelle Obama, also a black liberal, right? She is always saying, make healthy food choices and never put healthy, affordable grocery stores in every neighborhood, right? So again, it's that kind of downloading of responsibility onto the individual to ensure that you are um, able to escape these kinds of like structural harms and violences. I'll never forget the day that Michelle Obama's um, healthy lunch thing for public schools came out. And like, I remember it like, yo, and lunch, we used to get fried chicken and like, I'm, I'm from South Carolina. So like we used to eat like fried chicken and like stuff for lunch. And then <laughs> it just like the shit switched up and we were, it was like the f- school lunch was so healthy and we complained for so long. <laughs> we were like, no more fried chicken Wednesday, no more like breakfast pizza. Like this bitch got us mm. out here eating applesauce and something else. And <laughs> You know, 14, 15, 16-year-old me was not a happy camper. But (laughs) now looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, like that was part of this kind of neoliberal rhetoric where it's like, okay, you you people don't know better for Mm. yourselves. So we're going to institute these things and go against your wishes and your tastes and give you this food and then mandate that you pay for it, which is right. Um. For those of for those of us who weren't on free lunch, I was on free lunch my whole my whole life. But what I think I also find interesting about Barack Obama as to this quintessential black liberal is that he is biracial. And so he kind of captures this this imagination, mm. I think, of what a lot of I would say black and non-black liberals imagine to be um the pinnacle of liberation, which is this like these fantasies of miscegenation um, as Mm -hmm. liberation, which miscegenation just means, you know, interracial sex, essentially. Um, And (laughs) so it's like this, this idea that in this fantasy, really, that having mixed babies will free us. But the tea is y'all newsflash. People of all races have been fucking for centuries. And, you know, very long time racism anti-blackness and all these other evils still persist so and what's you know now what we what we have been seeing is even this fetishization of mixed race people um but we'll get to that in our colorism episode coming up mm-hmm. we're but, excited about that but we also did cover it in an instagram look at 
I just keep citing us. Yes. I love it. <laughs> so we actually, we talked a little bit about it in an Instagram post on September 17th. So mm-hmm. you can check that out. It says fetishization. And then the main picture is of a, a family. Mm. The dad is black and he has a shirt on that says white lives matter. Mm. The mom is, is white and she has on a shirt that says black lives matter. Yes. And then their son, I imagine, is mixed race and the, pro- the product of the two of them. And his shirt says, all lives matter. Yes, there it is. That is that is the liberal fantasy of miscegenation, yeah. right? But it also shows when we think about him and his biracial identity, if we think about Kamala, right? And her, also her biracial identity. Mm-hmm. And and it shows like, okay, what type of black person is allowed to, to have this kind of power or inhabit this kind of position, right? Michelle Obama, as a unmistakably black woman, enters in a position of power by being this biracial man's wife, mm-hmm. right? Like a black woman who looks like me, who looks like Fanny Lou Hamer, who looks like Shirley Chisholm, right? These women have a lot more ap- obstacles for a variety of reasons into getting into that position of power. But what is it about mixed raceness that allows that while also inviting a lot of anti-blackness, right? And so it's mm-hmm. it's such, I don't know, such an interesting thing for me to think about. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're seen as the translator, mm. the translator of radical blackness into white liberal modes of communication that allows them to hear mm. in a kind of easily digestible, and by, de- and by digestible, I don't mean simplified. I just mean something that doesn't actually attack the foundation of what it is that they, that white liberals believe in, which is still capitalism, which is still, um, you know, structures of inequality, which is mm-hmm. inclusionism. It's just like, all right, well, if y'all want rights, it has to be within the structure that we've already created none of this abolition business but <laughs> yeah no and i think also connected to what you're saying is like this politics of desirability as well mm. um and not just in a sexual way but like a just a, a a literal like who do we find attractive enough to fit into this space who would we want to listen to who would we want to look at who is just black enough Right. Mm-hmm. To be diverse, to be diverse. I know how can a person be diverse, but like to be diverse and then but not too black so that they're not necessarily undesirable. And it makes me think about this um, this presentation that I saw by Zalika and I'm, you know, forgetting Zalika's last name in this moment. But um, Zalika was talking about like desirability and a lot of people think about desirability as something that provides safety, but actually what desirability does is provide access. Mm. Safety is not guaranteed necessarily. And so I think about like Obama as this desirable figure. Like when he was running for president, I was like, oh, he's, you know, he's cute. He's this, he's that. Cool. But also just like a desirable figure because of his respectability, because of all these things. But that didn't mean that he was necessarily safe as president. Mm-hmm. He and his family got a lot of threats. And so there's a way that like blackness 
do I want to say fractious desirability? Because I don't think, I don't know. But like blackness like tweaks desirability so that it doesn't necessarily mean safety. It means mm-hmm. access to spaces, um, which I think is such a big part though of black liberalism is, is like representation. Like that's such a big, yes. like having access to, to space is such a big component of like this liberal ideal absolutely it's because of the politics of representation people come to believe that just by the presence of a black person that that space that they are present in is inherently radical and transformative but i think we've we've established and we've seen not all skin folk are kin folk and we absolutely saw that was it last week or two weeks ago when the honorable oh child clarence thomas mm. was the one who (laughs) swore in Amy Coney Barrett. Yo, what the fuck is going on in this world? (laughs) That's all I have to say is what the fuck is going on. Um, Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, though. It's like this idea that inclusion is radical, but not understanding that inclusion can happen through and be refracted through all these different forms of oppression right like just because you let one of us in don't mean we're going to be in operating at the same power and ability as others and when you do let one of us in and we do get to operate with the same power and ability as um clarence thomas has shown us that doesn't mean that they're going to make choices that are good for black people and so what I think Clarence, Clarence Thomas does is he provides this kind of authenticating presence, like a black man feel mm. of approval to these yes. racist classes policies. Cause he's like, well, you know, I'm a Negro. So here's my, and she's got Negro kids. So <laughs> no, here it is. I approve. I approve. And you know, <laughs> I remember when Brett Kavanaugh was up for the Supreme court seat last year, Oh, it feels so long ago, but I think it was mm-hmm. last year. Um, and people were saying that he was for sure absolutely not going to be appointed because a white woman had accused him of sexual assault. And I was like, uh, wait a minute. Do y'all not remember Clarence Thomas? Like, did we, have we forgotten mm-hmm. Anita Hill? Um, mm. And I just remember having conversations about this with lots of people and trying to show them that, like, actually Clarence Thomas, as a black man, set the president precedent right for perpetrators being appointed Mm -hmm. when he Mm -hmm. was appointed like he set that precedent if if you could not disqualify a black man for violating someone what made y'all think like what i don't know i know that Mm. i don't know it might take a minute for some people to understand what i'm getting at but like i'm getting there and you know in in my own opinion all that anita hill hearing did was really solidify his commitment to white supremacist and patriarchal principles, which were evidenced through his violation of this black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he actually, this is demonstrated like, oh, I'm actually fully committed to this white supremacist patriarchal project. Right. And he was not going to be punished for that. Like that's actually what this social order says is, is how black women should be treated. We should be disregarded in this way. We should be violated in this way. And what was disappointing mm-hmm. Cause this happened when I was a baby. So I don't, you know, I didn't have no participation in this, mm-hmm. but reading about it now, Joy James writes a really insightful, um, short chapter about this, but like 
people, black people supported Clarence Thomas because he was a black man, because they believed that him being included would bring about rights for black people. Mm-hmm. Despite all the telltale signs that he did not give a fuck about us. Um, and he actively and continues to actively vote against our interests. Um, so he swore in Amy Coney Barrett, who in her very short legal career has demonstrated that she will also affirm policies that will have the most harmful impact on black, brown and indigenous women and poor people. But I mean, representation, right? Like, right. at least there's a nigga in a high place, right? That'll bring us, mm-hmm. that's freedom, right? I, 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 love, I love what you said about the authenticating presence. It's actually what we should replace representation with, Mm. I think. Because I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, we just need to be represented in government and things will be better. We just need to be, you know, represented in um, the the C-suite in corporations and all of these kinds of things. But that doesn't actually make any changes. It It doesn't necessarily beget change, right? What it does is it kind of validates whatever kinds of like policies around diversity and inclusion or affirmative mm-hmm. actions. It's, it's a validating, authenticating force. The black, mm-hmm. the black, <laughs> here I go again with that, but, but the presence of the black in a room, I think is just like, right. is something that, that validates other things, but doesn't actually make things better for us. Right. It's like, oh, this is proof that our diversity and inclusion is mm-hmm. working because y'all are here. One of you is here. So we, it really must actually be working. Yeah. Um, but and- I mean, but so like on the politics of representation, I think there's a really great episode on Code Switch, um, which is a podcast by NPR. Um, and they talk about Kamala Harris and this program that she had for getting tough on truancy when she was the attorney general. I think attorney general, I might be wrong about that. Don't take my, don't take my word for that position that she had, but she had this like tough on truancy policy, truancy being not going to school or being absent from school. And so the law was already on the books. It's not like she just created a law and then whatever. She was like here, she was more so like, here is a kind of political discourse that will allow you to enforce this law. Mm. And so there was a black woman. She's a mother of a girl who has sickle cell anemia and sickle cell anemia. You can be very tired. You get sick very often. So she was missing a lot of school. And so as part of this project, the, the district attorney or something in that, in that, in her area decided to charge the mother with truancy, showed up at her house in the morning Perp walked her out of her house um, in front of cameras. Mm. It was on the news. And so she was arrested and charged because of a misunderstanding between the mother and the school. Mm. That was what. And so then they were just like, okay, we'll drop the charges if you agree to do a parenting class, you know, so you can learn how to become a better parent who gets her daughter to school. And so the mom was like, okay, great, thanks. But like, how is a parenting class going to make my daughter's sickle cell anemia better? Like she's not missing school because I'm incompetent. She's missing school because she's sick. And are you going to give me the resources to make sure that she has the best possible care? No. So here again, we kind of see neoliberalization mm-hmm. in practice. Mm-hmm. That was just, y'all check out that episode. So another thing that I think that I wanted to talk about today 
is that in the last six months, one of the things that we've really seen is that people are so, so invested in watering down the radical politics. Ouch. It's like, mm. okay. it's like abolitionists, say, <laughs> abolitionists say abolition, but the black liberals are like, but reform, <laughs> reform, abolition. They're like abolitionish. You yeah. know? <laughs> what, about, what about non-reformist reform? Yes. And so, you know, we've talked about Ibram X. Kendi's book on the podcast. Um, mm. You know, we're also seeing these like watered down black liberation syllabi. I should say liberation in like in quotation marks. You know, we're seeing these watered down anti-racism workshops mm. that kind of just like, you know, serve to make white people feel better about racism, but not actually let them know that they are the ones who are responsible for changing it. Race, racism and white supremacy becomes a black people problem mm-hmm. that we need to deal with rather than like something that white people need to change. But I digress. <laughs> Yo, but that's, that's literally it though. Yeah. And so these people, these people being the black liberal, you know, they, they serve a very particular purpose as you, you know, as we were talking about earlier, this authenticating purpose, but they also make these very scary concepts like abolition more palatable. And so they defang them and then they turn them into like a gentle reform and radicals, the people who have actually come up with these concepts, they get shut out of the conversation. So Mm. it's like these black and then black adjacent, (laughs) like Sean King, (laughs) 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 these uh these black and black uh adjacent liberals they're kind of like complicit in the silencing and these are the people who are leading the uprisings but what's even worse than that is like black liberals they actively pursue and participate in the silencing Mm. and so they're just like all right we're going to interpret this make it easier for white liberals to hear they're the kind of like the people who are like we have to go slow and it's like johnny james four generations like that's not slow enough (laughs) <laughs> that's too fast <laughs> maybe it should be eight generations maybe <laughs> I, yeah who knows <laughs> between slave and senator oh celebrate mm. you know while while we're on the subject of sean king <laughs> why has no one called him out you know the money the money disappears the money doesn't make it to places but no one has really canceled sean king and and like by canceled i don't mean critique but I mean the actual like deplatforming of Sean King and his social justice capitalism. It's kind of like, I, I don't know why not a lot of, I mean, I think that there are definitely activists who are calling him out and being like, don't donate. But I think that like big names who are usually um, supportive of, of like various movements for black lives and things like that, they don't really say anything. It's almost like because of this representation situation where we're like, we just need a foot in the door so that we can get a seat at the table. They're kind of like, ah, oh, well, I guess you're, you know, if, as long as you're on the train to liberation with us, we don't need to know if you have a ticket or not. <laughs> or if your ticket is for first class, sleeping, sleeping car porters. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't know if Sean King gets a, a ticket on, on the black liberation train. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, what I should say is, I don't know if Sean King was born with a ticket and on that, the black liberation that's, train. <laughs> that's the question, right? So a couple of things, like there have been numerous black women who've come forward and said, this man is a fraud. This man is a fraud. I think it's 
because it's black women who've come forward and like defrauded him. And of course, politics of desirability, like this man is light skinned, possibly white. Who know? I mean, people don't know, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think there are, are lots of reasons why he has a platform that he has, even though all the receipts are there about his um, scam, robbery mm-hmm. and scamming. Um, and, and we've, I mean, we've got to, we, we have to be skeptical because Jessica Krug, CV, these new, new professors um, coming out, all of these people, Rachel Dolezal, like all of that. I we mean, need to be this skeptical. This man came forward and said, you know, basically he thinks he's black because his mother was promiscuous. And even though he was raised by white people, his, his promiscuous mother probably slept with a black man. And that's why he thinks he's black. Oh, Jesus. And so it's like, but I think people are going back to civil rights movement, black power movement. People are so quick to point to a cis man and say he's the leader. And so mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reluctance of like letting problematic men go in these movements. It's because people are just really are looking for that kind of charismatic, quote unquote, black male figure um, mm-hmm. to, to lead us out of this neoliberal, <laughs> neo-capitalist, post-Ford, whatever, <laughs> insert all the academic words here. Okay, so I just mentioned canceling, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I said, really cancel. And so I think people have like totally gone crazy with this whole like, oh, these leftists and their cancel culture. And they use it to mean so-and-so was subjected to a social critique to encourage them to analyze Mm -hmm. the ways their behaviors or words are oppressive. Mm -hmm. But what does it really mean to cancel someone in activist circles? And do you like, do you know anyone who's been canceled? What, so what, like what happens? What does it really mean? Cause it's not just, here's a critique of what it is that you're doing and why it's problematic. It's more than that. Yeah. So canceling, I think is is like deplatforming someone, so taking away now activism is like a job. So people get paid to speak, people mm. get paid to like, you know, show up and, and be the authority on X, Y, and Z. And so when someone is canceled in activist circles, they're deplatformed. Uh, if they have a large social media following, they denounce, you know, you know. They denounce it. They have to publish their little Instagram apology. They have to publish their Twitter apology. They have to do their Facebook apology. If they're famous enough, they get to sit down with Jada Pickett-Smith and, you know, at the red table and have a talk about why they made the horrible choice that they made to say, you know, the N-word. If we're thinking about non-Black people, say the N-word or like why they were homophobic, even though people are rarely canceled for that. Or in like Doja Cat's case where she was canceled because, you know, black men found her desirable. But she was like, I don't like y'all. I actually prefer to show my feet to white supremacists. And, you know, she got canceled for that. And so I think. So she was actually deplatformed. Canceled. Like black men were like, we're not going to listen to her anymore. And then there are Mm -hmm. black people now who just like don't play her music because she has said that she I grew up with my white family and like I align myself with these people. It means like a broad reduction in access to the public, the public ear or eye right. kind of thing. Yeah, kind of like a reduction in, in social capital, which mm-hmm. these days, because of the internet and social media, can mean like money or, access, you know, class, ascension, 
etc. But do I know people who've actually been canceled, like actually canceled um, in the activist circles? Yes. And usually the people who are canceled in activist circles are not black men, black cis men. Mm. Mm. They're usually um, black mass, like trans, gender not conforming people who are mm. canceled. And as someone who's like, you know, I identify as an abolitionist and I'm growing and really trying to understand what that means and as a total transformation of how I relate to people. Um, I've had several conversations with Black, mass, trans, and gender nonconforming folks about like this cancel culture and how it's harmfully impacted them. And I think also because I am a survivor of sexual violence, um, I have a particular position in this at, as well. And so I don't think that canceling, quote unquote, actually works for cishet men of any race. Like, Mm -mm. I don't think that any cishet man has been canceled and actually deplatformed and is now like no longer living the life that he was living. I think cishet men are allowed to practice apology. Mm. They're allowed to like be, to allowed to make more mistakes. and, And it's kind of this like, really weird, twisted, gender essentialist logic of just like, oh, these men don't know any better because mm. they're, because they're, they were born with a penis and they identify as a man, they don't really know any better, which again, like getting back to black trans and gender not conforming masculine folks who may not have been born with a penis, right? So it's, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, y'all should know better than to exact this type of violence in black activist circles, but you do it anyway. So we're going to punish you as if you are this oppressor kind of thing. And what typically happens when they are canceled is they're deplatformed. But unlike people who have other forms of social capital, Black, trans, and gender nonconforming people need these platforms to eat. They mm-hmm. need platforms to have like actual survival. And when we excommunicate them from black activist spaces, it could mean literal death for them, Mm. either by them being placed in prison because they're not, they have to make different choices for survival. Suicide, there's a higher rate for suicide for black trans people. We know this, right? So like canceling in, in these circles are actually, is like a carceral form of punishment. Mm. Um, And so I'm really trying to think about that as someone who is black queer feminist in these in and out of these activist circles. It's like, how, how can we employ a politic of love of care and accountability in these circles without reiterating or like just bringing in state forms of carceral punishment and saying, Mm -hmm. this is activist and this is black and this is queer and this is feminist because black queer feminist people are doing it but it's like no this is actually just state sanctioned violence being reproduced in these spaces right yeah i think i mean that that speaks so much to to your research and i think the questions that people often have about your research which is that do black women really experience violence in activist spaces right like that's a question that people are like your research doesn't make any sense (laughs) yes no so i i think that you know, this hopefully is something that people hear and understand that just because people are activists and radicals, as we saw in in the kind of um, three different political strategies mm-hmm. um, that Black people employ, you know, they all can 
reproduce various forms of hegemonic violence. Yeah. But I find, sorry, I, I also find this like innocence thing interesting. I don't want to call it innocence for black men, but I'm thinking of like, you know, white women innocence. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how, I don't think innocence is really the, the right word for it. But you know how we always say like black men and white women are the weakest link in the movement, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, is it because it's tied to this innocence or something innocent adjacent for black cis men? I think, I think part of, I mean, I think it's really a fragility, like this idea yeah. of this like endangered, fragile category, which is black, cis, het, sometimes gay men are included in this, but like this fragile category that must mm. be protected because there's so few of them because the state hates them. They're hunted down. And so the few of them that dare to care about black queer feminist shit, we got to protect them at all costs, or we got to forgive them at all costs, or we got to understand that they were programmed to rape, etc. So we just got to talk to them. It kind of thing. I think, mm. I think it's, it's, it's like this kind of, Fragility. I know that's now that's like a, a buzzword because of a certain book that's out, but I do think that that that, that really frames like in the background a lot of this. It's, it's, it's just so interesting to see the way that race and gender intersects in Black communities, especially in Black community political work, because it's that same fragility, belief of fragility that'll have Black women standing on the front lines, the physical front lines in movement, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's like, oh, we need to protect these grown ass men back here. And it's not that, you know, I believe in patriarchal forms of protection and that men should be protecting us per se, but it's, it's, it's this inverted logic that Mm. then demonizes black women and says, well, y'all are emasculating us. Yeah. But then it's, it's twisted, but yeah, it's, it's, and all of this circulates and operates with different meanings at different times. And I think people don't even realize when they're participating in it, um, which is also really interesting to me, mm. especially in these spaces that are supposed to be liberatory. It's right. like, you know, what's the point? What's the point of mm-hmm. me being here if I'm still experience this kind of violence kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So... I think, I mean, an- another, another thing I wanted to talk about in terms of black liberalism, and let's, let's not confuse liberal with liberation. Mm-hmm. Liberal is freedom, hard work, all of these things. It's all about the individual, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But in that episode of Codes, which I mentioned earlier, the hosts, they talk about how, you know, we... Black people, but also white people, you know, we've heard a lot about racial profiling, right, in the last decade. Like, that's mm-hmm. something that people are like, yes, racial profiling, you know, most black and white liberals will be like, yes, that's a problem. And so that's actually because it affects black professionals, black elites. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, we haven't heard as much about mass incarceration. And that's because these black professionals or black liberals, the ones who have a seat at the table, quote unquote, they're not as affected by that. So I think that um, a a college graduate, a a black male college graduate is 10 times less likely to go to prison than um, a 
a black male high school graduate. I think that's a statistic. I, it's, oh. I, I'm not exactly sure, but that's shocking. Yeah. So that, that speaks to this like class and status divide that separates the interests of black people, but that we never really talk about. And I think we see that a lot. You know, we've seen that a lot in the last few days where it's just like, there's this, the black vote and the black vote is very, uh, homogenous, particularly compared to white and Latinx voters. And as you said, like 18% of black men though, voted for Trump. <laughs> right. We need to talk about that. But I think what it is, is that for black men, they're like, all right, we can, we can get a seat at the table, but they have no interest in flipping that table over or just like getting rid of that table altogether. And I think there was a tweet and I don't have it to hand, but to kind of summarize or paraphrase it basically said black faces who make it to high places are loyal to the high places and not other black faces. And I think mm. that is like quintessential. I'm loving that word today, black liberal. And so Jamila King, who was on that episode of code switch, she explains that Kamala Harris and other black liberals, they are here to make punitive systems more just, but none of them are trying to disrupt these systems entirely. And so to bring this black, bring this black. <laughs> to bring saying this, this, we bring it black. <laughs> so to bring it back to a black feminist praxis, it's not about having the seat at the table. It's about getting rid of the table altogether because the table is itself a, a tool of exclusion. So yeah, that is what I wanted to say. Period. Now I really, this is the most exciting part of this episode for me because I'm about to get some answers. Y'all about to get some answers. Um, yes, I'm on the. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have, we're gonna kind of redo almost a little discussion that we had back in August, um, in response to people vote shaming, um, and so you know, I, as I said in in this post on Instagram. Um, you know, I'm still kind of growing in my politics. Um, and so people had a lot of questions for me after, you know, after we posted about why we weren't begging people to vote, people had a lot of comments and questions like, what are you talking about? And I didn't really feel comfortable. You know, I tried my best, but I also gave the caveat that like, I'm still growing in this aspect of my politics. So I don't want to like have the final word and no one should really have the final word on on, on these kinds of things, but can you elaborate on the connection between abolition and voting or the disconnection really? Yeah. So I think as someone who's learning and practicing abolitionist politics, I think that voting is a form of harm reduction, right? And so abolition is about a total transformation of society and the way that we relate to each other. So moving outside of these um, forms of carceral discipline and logic, and how can I break this down? So even me, like as an abolitionist, having to rethink my own friendships and romantic relationships so that way when someone harms me, does me harm, hurts my feelings, my mm-hmm. initial reaction is not, oh, you deserve some type of retribution or punishment for this because I'm hurt. Um, it's, it's about decentering the ego, decentering the self. And for me, I really practice a 
why do I think that I am so special that especially as a survivor um, of sexual violence. Why do I think that what is the harm that has happened to me is so special that someone else deserves to lose their life, lose their livelihood, lose their family, lose their connections to others because of mm-hmm. something that they've done to me? Mm. I was saying this is me, like this is my politic and how I move through the world and think about this. I want to put that disclaimer out there. So in thinking about in relationship to voting, I think of voting as a form of harm reduction, one in which you choose between, you, you participate in a system that is totally actually evil, but you're choosing lesser evils over bigger evils. And so I don't know if there's necessarily a disconnect. I think a lot of abolitionists understand that we make a lot of choices when we participate in the system, we're always going to make choices that are about harm reduction that are never really about abolition mm-hmm. um, because abolition would require a total restructuring of our society and the way that we engage with each other and think about relationships and harm and accountability. I think that for me, my choice in not voting is me recognizing that one is a choice and two, like, that I don't want to no longer have to participate in a system where I'm choosing between two evils. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my personal choice in not voting. So th- I think the thing for me that I had trouble wrapping my head around was this dilemma of sacrificing some, and this was in a tweet responding to another tweet. So it was this dilemma of sacrificing some in the present mm-hmm. for a better future. And I was thinking like, this is the political system we have right now. Can't people vote and imagine a different future? Because abolition is in large part about imagining a different future and then making that future real, right? It's not just about like getting rid of these systems today, which that, or getting rid of these systems today is part and parcel of creating this this abolitionist future. So I was just like, well, okay, why can't, why can't you walk and chew gum if you're an abolitionist, it's like, yes, let's work towards dismantling these systems that are unjust, but also let's elect people who are going to kill us less until that happens. Yeah, I think people can do that. I I just was like, I don't feel good doing it. Um, voting did not make me feel good when I did it in 2016. That's the last time I voted. Like it just, it didn't, for me, it's a personal choice. Um, I always think of voting as a choice. And I think it's framed as like a right, but it's only a right for some. It's framed as a duty for some. But I think that like, there are plenty of abolitionists who say, I'm going to vote because I know it's a form of harm, of, of harm reduction. And I mm-hmm. think as long as we recognize it as a form of harm reduction and not as a form of like liberation, like nobody that you put in office is going to free you because then that means they would lose their job. Mm. No, I, th- I mean, I think the last time that we were talking about it, you were kind of like, why, why put my energy into something that I'm actively, that I actively want to dismantle? And I was just like, that was, that was what I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile personally. It was just like, but it's, this is, this is, this is what we have right now. (laughs) Yes. It's what we have right now. I think what troubles me though is, is because people think it's what we have right now, their imagination is limited to what we have right now. Right. Mm. So like 
the focus and the energy and the money and the attention is all put into putting people, investing people into what we have right now versus saying, hey, this money, this energy, this attention could be put into this imagination or actually enacting some of these things that we say we're going to get to after we do the voting. Mm. Like what, like I was talking to my partner about this the other day, like what if instead of spending the hundreds of millions of dollars to galvanize black people into voting for a party that refuses to actually recognize them <laughs> and their needs, what if we, sp- we turn that money back into like, community feeding programs, community schools, all these Mm -hmm. other things that, okay, are, yes, autonomous forms of movement, but like reinvest that money back into ourselves and that time and that energy back into ourselves rather than into this system that has shown consistently that it's going to fail us. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, let me cast my vote. Cool. I'm gonna cast my vote with, you know, whatever. But like, Actually, I'm going to take my money and my time instead of giving it to Joe Biden's campaign. I'm going to give it to my neighbor who needs who needs money for groceries. I'm going to give it to like, you know, mutual aid, things that help us sustain our communities, because at the end of the day, it's community work that really does that transformation anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will bring about that transformation anyway. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying about it limiting imagination. Is in a sense, what Toni Morrison talks about as a distraction, right? I mean, I think, and I think that's what this moralizing of, of voting and, and the efforts put towards it is, is it's, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of paralleling what Toni Morrison said, you know, she wrote, she, she was talking about, you know, the function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining your reason for being. And so, you know, I think her example is like, White people say you don't have a language, so you spend all this time proving you do. You know, she kind of ends that with saying, like, none of this is necessary. There's always going to be another thing. And Mm -hmm. so I guess what you're kind of saying is, like, divesting from that system will actually allow us to invest in things that will actually help us and not just, I guess, again, give us a seat at the table. Yeah, like, I think about all the people on my Instagram timeline who, like, I'm up all day and up all night watching these things and doing this, that, and the third, and like really just getting anxious because yes, like we are in a, in a, in a crisis moment. I think some people could say blackness is always in crisis and black people mm-hmm. are in crisis, but, and like just so much fear that comes in that, that also limits the imagination by saying like, Oh, holy shit. Like this is really it. Or like these affirmations that, there are hundreds of millions of people who believe that black people are lesser than them and they Mm -hmm. exercise and show that belief through the way that they vote. Part of me is like, okay, yes, that's the reality. That's always been the reality. What this does is, is kind of highlight that, make a, make it a flashpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But where do we go from here? Um, And so I feel like for me, I really think about like Octavia Butler's parable of the sower is kind of like this, guidebook, scary book, <laughs> scary, <laughs> scary guidebook of like thinking about the end times where we have this black girl who, who's like, you know, I know everyone else around here is thinking we're safe and we're cool. And all we got to do is just hide behind these walls. But I see what's really up. I mm-hmm. see what's coming down the road. Like destruction is coming and she prepares herself. And then, and through that, like 
begins to build a community around her. And so I, I try to think about that, like how, how can we as Black people see the end of the world knowing that our world has ended so many times, mm. right? And like understanding that like we have survived, our ancestors have brought us through so many ends of the world and here we are. If this is another world ending, we'll survive it. And we got to learn these lessons about how to move forward though, right? Mm. And how to actually like build communities that keep us safe and don't only keep some of us safe, right? Yeah. I think, I think that's such a good, it's a parable, right? Parable of the sower. I think that's, you know, that's a perfect entry point for people to think about, to think about abolition, I suppose. And I think that for a lot of people, they hear abolition and they're like, oh, all they want is the dismantling of these systems, but what are we going to do without them? And I think that people get stuck on the abolition part and they don't know that there actually already are a lot of, there's already been a lot of thinking and a lot of suggestions about what we could have instead. And they're not even just suggestions in a lot of places. They already exist. So people are like, well, you know, what are we going to do without the police? How, how, you know, how will we stay safe? And people have pointed out that the safest communities, even in the U.S., they don't have more police. They have more funding. They mm-hmm. have more, more parks and open spaces. They have more opportunities. And so essentially an abolitionist America looks like a white suburb. Or, <laughs> or I mean, it looks like a white suburb today, like the today, way we yeah. operate today. I don't mean we're all, we all need to be white suburbs. No, no, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, I was gonna offer. I, I got what you meant. Um, I'm gonna offer this too. Like I think about even in my own neighborhood in Baltimore, where it's like people know not to call the police when shit's popping off. So, like, the police exist, but people still operate with, like, mm-hmm. they may not call themselves abolitionists, but you operate outside of the forms of this, like, state-sanctioned violence because you know involving them what that's going to do, what kind of harm it's going to bring to everyone. Yeah. So, it's like, even within our own communities, we have practices that we don't, like, we don't rely on the state. Mutual aid is another example, right? Like, people, <laughs> me and my friends have this joke, like, we all be passing around the same $20 in our community, <laughs> right? But we, that's literally how we keep it. We sustain each other. And like, yeah. and we recognize that like, okay, our jobs aren't going to do it. The government's not going to do it for us. So we got to do it for ourselves. Um, and so things start, I think really thinking about abolition as something that is like actually achievable and approachable by thinking about what are the ways in which I already practice care and community without state police, you know, authoritarian involvement. That's one way to start thinking about that. And then how do we, but to really make it a black feminist practice, right? Like how do we think about these practices so that they're not exclusionary of marginalized people, that they're not exclusionary of disabled people. They're not exclusionary of the elderly of trans folks, of gender non-conforming, non-binary people? Like, how do we expand that imagination? Because we're already taking care of each other. Yeah. Um, and I think Black feminists, especially Black women who are Black feminists, recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, we already take care of each other. We all we got. We see that all the time. Yeah. Got, right? I, I, I Honestly, this is great. Like, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. I hope that people who haven't 
felt the need to or had had the time to, as they say, to really like dig into what abolition is, um, you know, really, really leave with a different with a different perspective, mm-hmm. <laughs> different perspective on it. But the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I've noticed this from like conversations, but also some of the comments on that post about us not begging y'all to vote. <laughs> I think that what people took away from this was like, all right, well, you know, if divesting from this political system is what works for black people, cool. And so what I noticed from those kinds of comments and reactions was that non-Black people don't actually see themselves as implicated or interpolated in that call. Like they don't, they don't themselves feel like they also need to be abolitionists. They're like, oh, okay, I understand why Black people wouldn't want to be involved because, you know, this, this structure mm-hmm. excludes them. So of course they're going to find like their own communities, but I'm already included. So I don't need to, I don't need to divest. I don't need to um, push away from it. And so I just want to ask, <laughs> is, is, is this a part of abolition that involves imagining and realizing new forms of community just for Black people because we're the ones who are left out? No. 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 <laughs> the answer is no, y'all. No, no. So you I, are included too. <laughs> I think about, um, and I think disability justice really does this work for us and I'm I'm new in disability justice and like learning about all the ins and outs and the contours of it especially but one thing that really struck me um and this person's name is Lydia and I'm going to find more information about them so that I can link their information but Lydia said the way that whiteness has been constructed is that everyone who is not white is already configured not a white cis heterosexual man is already configured as disabled. Mm. And I've been sitting with that because I know, I know what that, like that was really something that was like groundbreaking for me was like, okay, actually literally access is defined through these different markers. And so if you don't meet that marker, right, then you're not going to necessarily have access to opportunity, to resources, to wealth, to, you know, whatever, all of these things, because you literally, because you don't meet that marker. And what includes you in this system right now, right, is the fact that Black people sit at the bottom. Mm. What allows you to have access to that is the fact that Black people sit at the bottom. So if Black people choose not to sit at the bottom no more, if black mm. people say we're not longer going to participate in this, then who do you have to serve as a reference for what rights you're supposed to have? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's always interesting to me when non-black people of color say, I don't see myself in black liberation when it's like, if the people who've been relegated as non-human as the least of these gain rights, your life will automatically improve. Like it, it you like you won't lose you won't i mean you'll lose capitalist forms of power and structure etc but like it's not like you will lose if black people win that's the myth of capitalism that's the myth of all these different forms of oppression and thinking um mm-hmm. is that if black people were to gain everyone else would lose and it's like no actually this mass hoarding of wealth makes you lose too you just don't see it because there's a group of people <laughs> who lose so much more mm. i think disability studies and disability justice they 
I think they, they structure a lot of their thinking on, on the idea of the norm and, and what is normal. And I think that if we, we can apply that to, to race, where in, as you were saying, the white male cishet individual is what is normal. And then everybody becomes defined in opposition to that. Right. So I find that really interesting. And we are at two hours. We are. Of recording. <laughs> we really are. We are we're pushing it. Um, I think though that people have to take seriously like the Kambahi River Collective imperative that when black women are free, we're all free. Right. And like if people really internalize that. I think it would help them see that even if you don't see a direct like, oh, I need to be aligned with this movement, understanding that if this is something that makes life better for black women, it's it's necessarily like going to make life better for me is really something to internalize. Yeah. So all of that to say, you two are involved in this abolitionist call. Like you two are involved in the imagining and making real of a different world. It's not just about black people escaping the status quo it is about all of us coming together and doing something differently doing the world differently period transformation period Mm -hmm. (laughs) well (laughs) thank you all for listening everyone remember last week or not well that wasn't last week damn that was last month remember last time i said you know, you can only get one wish from your listeners. So Brendan, what's your wish from our listeners this week? My wish is that all of you find places of rest and peace in this moment. Our podcast is, of course, one of those places of rest and peace. Wink, wink. (laughs) Yes. So share that place of rest and peace with others, please. (laughs) Yes. Of course, you know, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram. If you would like to read our transcripts for the episodes, our bios, or get in touch, head to zorastotters.com because we've got the brand ownership on lockdown. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. And until next time, remember, we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.